If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, the 24th chapter, this morning we will be finishing our time in the book of Joshua and finishing our series called The Promised Land. The book starts with Joshua being commissioned by the Lord and immediately called to be strong and courageous. But you need to know that the strength and the courage that God calls them to is not tied to warfare, but to obedience. First, or Joshua 1, 6 and 8 says this, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you'll be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. From the beginning of the book through the end, God calls his people to obedience and to be strong and courageous in their obedience. And we see throughout the whole book that when they were strong and courageous, when they were obedient, God walked with them. And not long after this calling, Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River into the land that God had promised them. And then as we move through the book, we see them inheriting the land from Jericho to Ai to Gibeon to Makeda, from the southern Canaan to the northern Canaan, difficulty after difficulty, challenge after challenge, fight after fight. But what we've seen is that their victories were cued on their obedience. And in their obedience, the strength and faithfulness of God would show up and give them victory. That's the theme of this book. We see it over and over again. And we've watched in many situations as they chose to be obedient. And then in many others, we watched them choose to trust their own strength, choose to go their own way, which would not only lead to defeat, but lead to discipline. Friends, God called this people into the promised land. And in doing so, he was calling them to a life that was not for their glory, but for his. It was not about their sufficiency, but it was about his. And when God called them into the promised land, he did not call them to the fulfillment of their flesh, but rather to the conformity of his character, that he would be revealed through them to the world and that they would be free from all kinds of idolatry and all kinds of impurities. The thing you see over and over in this book is when the Israelites chose sin, when they chose idolatry, it was to their detriment. It was to their pain. God was calling them to something better. Friends, it would be impossible for us to study this book and not pick up on the reality that life will always have challenges. It would be impossible for us to study this book and not see how susceptible God's people are to sin. And it would be impossible for us to study this book and not see the degree to which God would call us to wage war on our own sin. You see that repeatedly through this book. 
And this morning, as we open Joshua 24, we'll see some of these same themes as Josh, the book finishes, and we finish the life of Joshua, and we finish his leadership over Israel. And as we lean into this last chapter, we see Joshua's last act is leading Israel through a formal commitment ceremony whereby they would formally renew their covenant with the Lord. Not far from the fittingness of having a baby dedication where somebody comes forward and says, I want to make a public commitment to the Lord, to raising my kids in the Lord. Joshua takes Israel and says, we're going to commit ourselves before he passes on, we're going to commit ourselves to the Lord. That's what we find here in Joshua 24. So let's dig into it this morning, verse 1. Joshua gathered all of the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. They all arrive at Shechem. Why Shechem? Commentator Clarence McCartney put it this way, if you were to put Plymouth Rock, Yorktown, Lexington, and Independence Hall together, you would not have what Shechem is to Israel. Which is to say, it is at Shechem that God first appeared to Abraham. It was at Shechem that God promised to give this land to Abraham and his offspring. It was at Shechem that Abraham built the first altar to Yahweh in response to that promise. It was at Shechem that Jacob gave up idolatry and buried his idols after returning back to the promised land. It was at Shechem in Joshua 8 when the Israelites first committed themselves to the Lord and built an altar, which is to say that Shechem is a holy place to them and a place that is very fitting for them to reaffirm their covenant. But they weren't just meeting at Shechem. They were meeting God there. The text says... They presented themselves before God. You only see this in one place in the Old Testament. It's in Exodus 19.17. The people presented themselves there before God in order to hear the covenant, to agree to it, and to ratify it in a covenant ceremony. You see the same things happening here. They're showing up because they want to commit themselves to God. As the text will continue, it continues in the form of a formal Hittite Suzerain Treaty. I give you some nerdy vocabulary, in case you wondered, because it's a particular kind of covenant that shows up in the scripture and a particular kind of language that follows, much like epistolary literature in the New Testament has a form, covenantal language and Suzerain treaty language has a form, and it's the idea that a vassal or a peasant would covenant themselves to a ruling lord. And so that's what we find here in the following verses. Verse 2 through 13 serve then as a prologue to this covenant, where you're walking through the history. How are these two entities that are about to covenant to, to each other, how are they related And I want you to listen very close to the language as we read through it. Verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Pause for a moment. God did not choose himself for himself a faithful people. 
No, God chose for himself a total pagan. It is so worth us even seeing that in the Old Testament, that he chooses a total pagan for himself. We see that in verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through the land of Canaan, and his and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. What you find in those quick three verses, two to four, is the entire book of Genesis summed up. And what you see is grace. Watch the pronouns. If your Bible is open, and I encourage you to have a Bible open, look at it. Because watch the pronouns in these verses and watch the actions. I took. I gave. It's talking about what the Lord is doing for Abraham, what the Lord is doing for his people. It's the Lord taking Abraham. It's the Lord giving to Abraham. So we do have to ponder and stop and think, what did Abraham do to deserve to be called? What did he do to earn God's favor? And the answer is nothing. God takes a total pagan and covenants himself to this guy saying, I will bless you abundantly. I will be good to you and I will give you offspring. All promises God that is, that God is making to Abraham, not based on Abraham, but on God's favor. Verse five. And I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. What you find now in these three short verses is 18 chapters of the book of Exodus. But once again, notice the pronouns and the actions. I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt. I brought you out. You're supposed to get this overwhelming sense of God's faithfulness. God working to bless his people even despite their unfaithfulness, that God would consistently and literally provide for them, even by giving them daily manna. He was providing for them, taking care of them. And you start to see this story of God's faithfulness being unraveled from the very beginning up to that point. In verse 8, he starts with the rest of the book of Exodus. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel and he sent and he invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Now, there's lots and lots of details, and if you don't know your Old Testament well, it might all slip past you. But again, it is grace upon grace upon grace of God's 
loving provisions to his people to bring them to the promised land, to tell them that I've fought for you, that I've given you, I've delivered you. Friends, it would have been impossible at that moment where Israel is covenanting themselves to God to have missed the picture of God's faithfulness. Finally, he gets to the book of Joshua in his chronological telling of their history in verse 11. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You went over, God says, and I gave it all to you. I gave you the land. Watch your pronouns. In 12 verses, there are 18 I statements declaring what God has done for their people what the Lord had accomplished on their behalf. And if you've watched this, you should have picked up by now that it is not on the basis of the Israelites to which God is doing this. It's on the basis and the merit of God's faithfulness. It's on the basis of his character and his steadiness that Joshua then exhorts Israel here in verse 14 That out of all of this, how God has been gracious, how God has been faithful. Listen to this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away all the gods that your father served beyond, beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, just for a moment, I want you to imagine a wedding. And at the beginning of the wedding, the bride and the groom, and they stand up. And as they stand before the church, you know beyond a matter of doubt that that woman has been so unfaithful to that guy to the nth degree. And you know that that man has been so faithful in every conceivable way to that woman. And yet it's the woman having to be convinced to go through the marriage. That's very much what's happening here. We're asking you to covenant yourself to someone who's treated you far better than you've ever deserved, to covenant yourself to someone who's been more gracious to you than you could ever imagine, to covenant some yourself to someone who is more faithful, tirelessly faithful, who's never turned their back on you, who's never walked away from you, who's never even conceived of pushing back on you. That's the picture we have here. That That's the picture that Joshua is painting. That because of who God is, because of his faithfulness, because of his character, you should commit yourself to him. That you don't respond out of your place, out of your need, out of your hurts. You respond out of his needs and his character and his faithfulness. Therefore, Joshua says, Serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. 
He doesn't say you owe this to him. He doesn't say, hey, you guys, got to follow the rules. He doesn't say, guys, you need to operate out of a large sense of guilt. Like an overwhelming, overarching, feeling terrible about what you've done. No, Joshua's whole argument, the whole basis of this treaty is to paint an enormous picture of God's faithfulness and to call you to respond to it. Church, that's the gospel. It has very little to do with what you bring to the picture. That's the gospel. It's not about your unworthiness. It's not about the fact that you fall short, because we all do. Every last one of us. No, the gospel exists because we fall short. That God would send his son to die on the cross for us because we couldn't do it on our own, not on our best day. And really not on our worst. And so you see this enormous picture of God's grace, an enormous picture of God's faithfulness, and Joshua says, respond to that. That's what you respond to. Keep your eyes on him because it's because of who he is. It's because of what he has done. Keep your eyes on that and serve him. And in doing so, put away false gods. Put away your idols. Walk away from sin. All because of the big picture of who he is all in response to who he is. By the way, this all sets up pushing us towards Joshua 24, 15, which is probably the most common verse in Joshua. And some of you might even have it in your house. But when you see this backdrop, I hope it gives you a different concept for what this verse is saying. Because when you get to 24, 15, it says... And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, if you look at his faithfulness and go, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. That, that, that guy who's been gracious and faithful to me, that guy who's provided every one of my needs, the one who's fought for me every victory, the one that's given me the strength on every day, I don't want that. That's evil in my eyes. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell, whether it's this historical reality of sin that just falls through your family pattern and I'm angry because my dad was angry or whether it's this other sins and these other idols that you've picked up hanging out with your new friends and your new buddies. He's saying, choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be false gods or will it be the God? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Friends, this has nothing to do with architecture. It has nothing to do with two-by-fours and drywall and everything, everything, everything to do with considering idolatry and sin and the one true God and saying, I'm all in. I want Jesus. I want to respond to this enormous picture of grace and of faithfulness and say, yeah, that's me. I want to go all in here. 
Because what God does in this Paschal, what Joshua is doing, is calling the Israelites in this moment to commit. To neither be hot or, or to be hot or cold, as Jesus wrote to the Laodicean church, which we looked at last week. To be involved in idolatry and worship the stuff of the world or, by the way, it's or, not and, or in complete response to who he is, in response to what he has done, commit to the Lord. He's painting this picture that says you cannot keep a foot in, on both sides of the line. You can't keep wandering this way and wandering back and just as if you're on this little happy journey and you're a snake going on a line back and forth. He says commit to serve the Lord. The people respond in verse 16. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in a way that we all went and among the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out, drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. The people respond because of who he is, because of what they've done. They say, we want to commit ourselves to this. I want to take you back to that picture of the wedding for a second, because at the moment where the officiant asks the bride, will you commit? And she says, yes. Joshua steps in and is like, are you sure? Like, are, are we serious about this? Like, is this really what you're saying? That there's something more than just lip service that matters. Joshua says to the people in verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your trespasses or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods. Then he will turn and do harm and consume you having done after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua says to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Verse 23, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Friends, I want you to see this. Because when Joshua calls them to commit, he calls them to commit with more than just their lips. He calls them to commit with their lives. If you're saying, on this day, you're going to commit to the Lord our God, if you're saying you're all in, you and your house, then destroy your idols. Because Joshua happens to know that a lot of these folks were going to then go home and they had their little altars still at their houses. They still had parts of idols. They still had plans to continue on. So Joshua's interest is not just in a verbal commitment. If you're going to say, if you're going to commit to him, if you're going to commit to this God, 
then destroy your idolatry. Kill your sin. Don't keep hanging on to this thing that's weighing you down. He's putting before them, don't you see how you're worshiping two things? And God knows it. God sees this abundant worship that you have for Him and this abundant worship you have for your flesh. And God is totally aware of it. He says, choose whom you will serve. And I think there's a time and a place for us to ask that question. Friends, are we committed to God? Are we committed to the God of the Israelites, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sent his son to go to the cross to die on our behalf? Because when you see that picture, it is that exact same picture of grace that we see through the Old Testament, of God doing everything on our behalf. We go back a couple of verses. He would say, you're about to live in cities you didn't build and you're going to eat fruit from an orchard you didn't plant. Friends, do you not take, do you not appreciate the privileges that we have in salvation that we want to just live on and say, man, God's given me this abundant grace. Yeah, it's his grace. It's his faithfulness. That's what this calls us to respond to. Who he is. And the application is to commit and to put away sin. As we've worked through this series, I've worked really hard to not illustrate sin. Several people have asked me why. Here's your why. Because if I illustrate sin like this, if I tell you, some of you need to stop selling drugs, there might in fact be somebody here who needs to stop selling drugs. Fair? But the rest of you are going to feel great about yourselves. I don't do that. I'm not that bad at all. Some of you need to do the dishes for your wife. Or fold some laundry or clean the house, or honor your husbands, or obey your parents, or stop stealing. The moment I illustrate sin for you, the moment you lean into the sins that you don't struggle with and feel glorious about yourself and start condemning the people around you, like, ah, at least I'm like them. And yet this text, the whole Bible exists to convict you of your sin. Not to convict your neighbor of theirs. The Holy Spirit should be at work in you and in your life and in your heart pointing out your sin. That is the idol you struggle with. That is the idol you must put away. And that is the idol that you must put away not based on your hard work, not based on you white-knuckling it, not based on you being enough. For if any of those things are true, you miss the book. No, your idols will be put away. Your purity will be found. Your commitment to the Lord will be accomplished by your willingness to show up for the fight and asking Him to move. 
That's the theme. This is what you see throughout Joshua. God says, show up, fight the fight, trust me, and know that he'll do it. It's in that moment where you go, I don't know, I'm going to freelance it. That's when we fall apart. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Incline your hearts to the Lord, said the God of Israel. Don't just say it, do it. Verse 27. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statues and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Likely Joshua wrote the book of Joshua. And he took a large stone and he set it up up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words that the Lord has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you feel, lest you deal falsely with your God. This is a covenant. This is not a promise. You use a large stone because if you've gone through this falsely, may the large stone fall on you. And that's not a joke. It's a covenant. They covenanted themselves to the Lord. They covenanted themselves to the faithful one. They covenanted themselves to the one who would give them strength, the one who would be their protection. They covenanted themselves to the one who brought absolutely everything to the party. They just had to be faithful. Friends, from the moment God called Abraham out of a pagan, idol-filled life, he committed himself to Abraham. And he covenanted himself to Abraham in such a way that his promises would be held forever and ever and ever, even to his offspring. The book of Joshua, from a big picture sense, tells us that God is a promise keeper, that he's faithful despite our sinfulness. The book of Joshua tells us the story about a God who is faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful, even when we are faithless and faithless and faithless and faithless. The book of Joshua is about a people who are called to be obedient. And in their obedience, to watch his victory. Friends, we're called to show up and fight the fight and to watch him win. When you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were asked to covenant yourself to him. That's what faith is. It's a covenant. You would seal that covenant with a baptism and say, I formally declare my allegiance to the Lord. We dip you in water. We bring you out. Symbolic of being lowered with Christ into the grave and brought back out in new life. It's a covenantal ceremony. We reinitiate that covenant every time the Lord's table comes before us and we take elements, being reminded that Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus, in communion, covenants with you about his faithfulness despite your unfaithfulness. You should then know, by the way, I'm not walking through all the the last verses in Joshua, 
then verse 31 confirms that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. They were faithful. They held on. By the time you get to the book of Judges, they've all forgotten. Let us be mindful of our covenant. Let us be mindful of our commitment to the Lord. Let us be mindful of putting before you a picture of God's graciousness and his faithfulness. And let it be so big that that's what we respond to. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, thank you for your abundant love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness, your faithfulness, and your faithfulness, despite our unfaithfulness. Father, thank you for fighting the fight for us. At no point did you ask the Israelites to be enough to take on the Canaanites. At no point did you ask the Israelites to do it on their own. In fact, it's when they tried on their own is when they failed. Father, would you give us a bigger and a bigger picture of who you are? Would you call us into your word that we'd see who you are? And that in your word we'd be reminded so frequently. That's why God called Joshua to meditate on this word day and night. So we'd constantly know who God was and respond to his character. God, would you keep that picture before us and allow us to respond to your, to your grace and your love for us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.